We have been looking together as a church at the second book in the Bible, the book called Exodus. You've just heard part of it, a difficult part of it, read uh, by Ian Fenton. And if you were particularly observant, you would have noticed that we're starting partway through the story. If you noticed, give yourself a point. If you're asleep, or if you notice the person next to you asleep, just give them a, a, a subtle nudge. We started this great escape, this rescue story, back in September. We took a break over Christmas and are restarting, rebeginning today. So the first thing I want us to do is just review where we've been. The book of Exodus. Why, why are we studying this book? Why are we preaching from it week by week? Let me give you two reasons uh, before we get into the, the nuts and bolts of the recap. Firstly, that this is a true story, actual real events that took place that were foundational and are foundational for God's people. For the Old Testament believers before Jesus came along, the Jewish people, and then for the followers of Jesus after, after he came right up until this present day. This is a foundational story. It's an origin story. This is how we got here. That's part of what the book of Exodus is like. Just as in the same way for, for each one of us here, how your parents met is a foundational story for explaining who you are. For better or for worse, there is a story and it helps explain how you got here. In the same way for God's people... This story explains how they got to where they are, how we got to where we are. They explain something of God's character and his love, how he comes to get people to save them, how he reveals his ways, his laws, his commandments. But more than just foundational, the book of Exodus is a formational story. I'm not even sure formational is a word. But it didn't come up my spell check when I was typing it in, so that's a good sign. What happened physically those thousands of years ago in the, the land of Egypt continues to shape the reality for men and women, boys and girls today. It continues to shape their choices and their understanding of themselves and of our worlds. And so as we read the, the story of the Exodus, we see a people who were physically enslaved. And we see how that speaks into the, the reality of the spiritual enslavement of all people. That we are not born free. That we are enslaved to our desires, good and bad. In the book of Exodus, we see that God is a God who sees and cares about his people. And how he acts to, and intercedes to save them from the suffering that they are facing. And that shapes the, the reality for God's people today. That we have a God who sees and hears our hearts and our pain and our suffering and acts to comfort us and ultimately to rescue us in the book of exodus we see that there is a god who is a rescuer to free people 
who could not save themselves. And this God is the same God who didn't just send a prince of Egypt to rescue his people. A man who comes from the palace to be one of the people. But that God himself steps out of heaven to be part of his people to save them. This is the foundational, formational story that we have begun. And we have seen the plight of the people. We have heard their cries. And we have seen the faith of some of those people in the worst of circumstances, trusting that God is there and acting with courage and conviction to do what is right. And we have heard God reveal himself, his very name to Moses, his chosen servant. Moses, who was miraculously saved as a child, who was strangely prepared in the wilderness. And now we've seen God call Moses into Egypt and we wait on the edge of battle, waiting for the the real action to come. And then we hit Exodus chapter 6. And this, Fenton used the word genealogy, or in your Bible you might have got that the family record. My New Year's resolution is to keep my hand down in elders' meetings when we're deciding who's going to preach these difficult passages. (laughs) What is a genealogy? We're going to think firstly about a a genealogy for, for that generation, for the people then as we walk into the book of Exodus, or you might just want to say, we're going to ask some questions about this genealogy and what is a genealogy and, and all the rest of it. So what is it? What is this, this family record? It's simply a line of heritage. It's the sort of document that's crucial to the, the TV show, Who Do You Think You Are? Maybe you've watched that. I think nearly every episode finds out that whoever the celebrity is, they're somehow, some way related to royalty. That seems to be, you know, nearly every episode. If Danny Dyer's related to the king, nearly everybody is, surely. In the Bible, these lists of names crop up again and again, and they are, by and large, proof that these people belong to the people that God chose, the people that God promised to work through, the people that God promised to bless, and the people that God promised to bless the world through. And so here is a bit of paper that says, I belong to those that God has called. That's what genealogies are. Let's ask the question, well, when is it? Because as we're reading through the book of Exodus, we're reading about conversations and we're seeing geographical movements as Moses goes from being part of the Hebrews to into the palace, from out of the palace, into the wilderness, out to Midian, back to Egypt. And it's, a, in a sense, a normal story. And then suddenly we get in chapter 13, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of the families. And it, it doesn't read as though we've got Moses here standing next to a pyramid reading these words. It's an odd insert. 
It's not part of the, the narrative. Now, this has clearly been put in by the, the author or editor of Exodus as he's retelling the story, helping his readers, his hearers to understand. The first five books of the Bible are called the, the law as a whole. Maybe you've heard it described as the Torah in the, the, the Jewish religion. And Deuteronomy 31 tells us that it's Moses himself who writes down these first five books. Towards the end of his life, before he dies and before the people go into the promised land, he writes down the law. And as he's writing it down, he, write, he puts this in there. And so there wasn't a moment, I don't think, where somebody said the, all these words. There's no conversation taking part that you know, this is, is pulled directly from. But we hear, hear God speaking to his people after this time that at this moment we need to, to hear this list of names we need to read this family line to understand what's going on so here we are what's in this family record what's in this genealogy and and why is it here well this is the family line of moses our most prominent human character, but also his brother Aaron, who God has told to Moses, look, I will give you Aaron as a, as a helper. I'm going to send your older brother along to help you out because, because you're fearful and you don't trust that I can use you alone. And so far, Moses has been this central character. We've got to know about him and his marriage and one of his kids and his story and his calling. But now we get the family line of Moses and Aaron. And it's almost as though Moses is saying to us, right, look at the history. Remember Abraham, who God made these promises to, and then he had Isaac, and and he had Jacob, and he had his 12 sons. Let's zoom in there and start our family tree there. Verse 14, these were the heads of their families, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, which is another name for for Jacob. And we say, okay, here's Reuben. Let's move on to son number two, Simeon, verse 15. Okay, and then 16, move on to Levi. And at that point, he presses the zoom button. Let's go in a little bit closer on Levi. And then as he goes further, goes into Levi's kids, he goes, let's zoom in a little bit further. Let's go from Levi down to his son, Kohath. And then he zooms in out of Kohath's sons to Amram. And then from Amram's sons, Amram's descendants to Moses and Aaron. And then from Aaron to Aaron's sons all four of them and then actually to one from there from one of them to one of Aaron's grandsons interestingly Moses' sons are not mentioned 
And we're reading this thinking, hang on, I thought this was about Moses. I thought he was the key character. What is going on here? Why are we given this genealogy here? Well, I wonder if we can take an educated guess to say that as Moses comes riding in to Egypt and goes back to his people and says, God has given me this this great work to do. God's going to rescue and God's going to save you. Some people were saying, who are you? Moses, we're not sure. Moses, you've been AWOL for, for a long time, 40 years. We haven't seen anything of you. And actually, for the 40 years before that, you weren't here with us. You were in the palace. You were living with the enemy. You were one of Pharaoh's. You were the other side of the battle lines. And what this family line does is establishes that Moses is one of them. But maybe, and at the same time, and maybe even the same people are saying, oh, now he's got, Moses, he's got Aaron on his team. Well, we can see that Moses has been called by God. He's come in and he's, he's got these signs that are spectacular and God's clearly working through him. He's quite impressive. And, you know, I mean, he's obviously learnt a bit at the palace. Big guy. Stands up, knows how to talk to power. But Aaron. We know Aaron. Aaron's been around and, quite frankly, he's, he's not all that getting kind of outshone by his younger brother. His familiarity breeds contempt, isn't that the saying? They knew Aaron. They knew how ordinary he was. And here God is saying to them, maybe in conversations, but certainly to us as we read it, God's saying, these are my servants. These are from my people. These are the ones who are working towards my goals, my ends, for your good. And so, verse 26, it was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. Here's the heritage. God says, here's what I have been working from across the generations. But maybe this is also for Moses. Because Aaron seems to be more of the key play here. Moses is not the focus. It's not Moses' kids that are mentioned. It's Aaron's. Maybe for Moses, God is saying to him, Aaron too is called by me. Aaron too is part of the way that I will fulfill my plans. Now at either end of this family line, we get almost the identical verses talking about where Moses is at. So look back to chapter 6, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? And then we get this long list of names, the family line. 
And then we get verse 28. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he, asked, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Book ended in this entire section is Moses's doubt. He's unsure that the way that God has chosen is right. He sees his own weakness. And it's almost as though in the middle of that, God says, here's the help that I've provided. And it's not an accident. Here is the one that I have placed alongside you. Here is the one who will speak for you. And it's not an accident. It's not a plan B. Let me walk you, Moses, through what I have been doing across the generations. Let me walk you right from the tribes of Israel as they came into Egypt and show you how I have worked down all the way to Aaron. It's less dramatic than the calling of Moses. But it has no less certainty. I'm going to pause there and we'll come back to the genealogy. But just as an aside, I want to talk to you about genealogies. Maybe you've gone through your Bible in a year and you've already hit a genealogy and you've thought, oh man, I'm going to struggle to do my Bible reading today. What can we learn? when we read these lists of names in our Bibles. Genealogies, family lines, are all about establishment. And they often highlight traits or particular individuals. And we're going to see some of the, the details and the specifics in this genealogy in a minute. But I want us to think about the indirect message here. All the names of people that we don't know that we don't have any other story for. All the offshoots in these family trees, all the, we, we might call them dead ends. The non-errants, the other brothers, the sisters that are not mentioned, the other clans. What about them? Why are they mentioned? Why, why could not God just say, look, I'm not even going to mention Reuben. Forget Simeon. Let's start with Levi. And let's go straight to the son that's important and then straight to the son that's important. He could do it in four names. Why mention all these other people? Well, Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who dwell in it. All. Every man, every woman, every girl, every boy, every teenager, every person, in every seat, in every building, in every home, in every country, in all the world. They belong to the Lord. Every one. And every name and every owner of every name can say with the psalmist in Psalm 139, you Know me, Lord. Every name in this genealogy is known and recognised by God. And we might not know them. 
And we might not know their stories. And we might not know their, their successes and their failures. But God does. And it is true to say of every one of these people who we might never read of again, God knows them. And God knows you. God knows your life. God knows your heart. God knows the things that you dream of and the things that you fear. God knows the failures that nobody else knows about and the successes that you've never told anyone of. God knows the real reason behind some of the things that you get praise for. God knows every thought, every word, every deed. You are not unknown to God. You are known. You are important to him. You are loved. And if you have responded to him, you belong to him forever. Psalm 56 says that every one of the tears of God's people is written in his book. If you are trusting in Jesus, no matter how small you feel, no matter how insignificant you feel, and you might even feel this way in our church. We might have failed you. You might feel that in your workplace or in your school. You might feel that amongst your family or your friendship group. That nobody really knows me. Nobody really cares. It doesn't really matter. I'll never be noticed. I'll never be in a list. And God says, I know you. All of you. In every way. And I love you. So as you read a genealogy, remind yourself that you belong to God and he knows even if nobody else does if you feel unnoticed and unimportant in church or, or anywhere else well genealogies scream out that age old truth that we sing Jesus loves me this I know for genealogies tell me so maybe don't sing that one at bedtime the Bible tells me God sees me and knows me. Okay, that is the aside. Back to Exodus. And we jump from chapter 6 into chapter 7. And we talked about a, a review of where we've been. Let's talk about a preview now as we head into chapter 7. And the story begins to, to look forward. The opening to chapter 7 both reiterates what we already know, but it also places it into the context of a question for, for faltering Moses in the face of fearsome Pharaoh. It's on his mind. Pharaoh's big. I'm small. What's going to happen? Well, let me give you the headlines. Verse 1 Moses and Aaron are called by God. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, God says to Moses, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything that I have commanded you. So they are called, but they are also commanded. And then they are cautioned in verses 3 and 4. 
Here's how it's going to go. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Here's how it's going to play out. I've called you. I've given you your instructions. But the road will not be smooth. There's going to be ups and downs. Many victories and major defeats. But then Moses and Aaron, having been called, having been commanded, having been cautioned, are given certainty. Verse 4, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. This is where the story is headed. This is another section where God reveals himself to be, yes, the great I am, but he also is the God who says, I will. I will. And you can go back and listen to some of our earlier messages in the series to to hear the the certainty of that in the the previous chapters, five and six. The God who is I am says, I will will but the question for Moses when God says I will is will I with my faltering lips will I trust what God has said will I get on board will I obey and it's the question that God presents to each one of us as he reveals himself to us God has done. God has acted. God is the God who saves. And we read this as we see the Exodus story then transported through the rest of the Bible. And we see that the God who sends a rescuer here will ultimately send his own son to rescue people from sin. And he says, it is finished. I have acted. I have gone to the cross for you. Will you trust? Will you obey? Will you get on board with God's plan? The God who has sent his son into the world to save sinners. The God who has sent his son to rescue slaves who are slaves to sin, to free them, to defeat the powers of darkness, to take people from darkness to light, from Egypt to the promised land. Will you trust him? And God asks it of Moses And he asks it of us. This is how the story will play out. There is no doubt. God wins. But will you trust? Will you continue to trust? Will you obey? And so for our final point, I want to think... And maybe you saw the, the headline for this sermon series, uh, this, sorry, this, this sermon, the credentials of God's servant. Because I think what's going on here is this question of what, what does it look like to serve God? And the reason that this, or part of the reason that this genealogy is here is to, to point the original hearers 
of the book of Exodus to give them the, the, the answer to the question, what does it look like to serve God? Will Moses serve? Will Aaron serve? Will they obey? And you might see the answers in our passage. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. So our final point is a genealogy for the next generation or genealogical gold. Because we're going to sift the names in this family line and we're going to put ourselves in the shoes of the original hearers. So Moses has given them the law and instructed them that the law should be read. So people will hear this story and the people of Israel will know about the Levites. The Levites were the tribe that were set aside by God to be sort of model servants. And so they were different. And so they had jobs in the sanctuary. What does it look like to serve? And then we consider all the things that Moses and Aaron are bringing to this. Moses and Aaron, who are, verse 7... 80 years old and 83. They are not spring chickens. They're old. I'm sorry if you're in your 80s. It's not a personal comment. But I think that's the reason it's there. They're on in years. And so they're bringing weakness. They're obviously feeling within themselves not an abundance of energy, but this is going to take some. Remember, this story is going to go up and down. Many successes and failures. Pharaoh, yes, no, yes, no, maybe. And so they're weak. And they're doubting, Moses especially. What does it look like to serve the Lord? Who can serve the Lord? And so we dive back into the genealogy. And specifically, as we've done this zooming in down through the lines, this son, this son, this son, we want to take note of where this genealogy ends. Because it doesn't end with Moses and Aaron, does it? Look back down into chapter 6. We get Moses and Aaron appearing in verse 20. And then we get other people mentioned, other sons. And then details, details about Aaron. And there are some negative examples of service here. There are people with checkered pasts. Those who, well, let's face it, we wouldn't have appointed. And so there are these little details about Amram. Verse 20, Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed. And you think, oh, that is a questionable background. Actually, when God gives the law through Moses, that is going against God's law. And yet, Moses is the leader and Aaron is the high priest. I'm not sure I would have chosen him. Not sure I would have chosen them. 
here's the law, here's what God's people to do, and, and our great shining examples are people who, well, if the law had been in place, would be lawbreakers. Okay, so they didn't technically break it, but it's, it's messy, isn't it? Amram married his father's sister. I mean, talk about awkward Christmas table dinner chats. Aaron, we're told, married, verse 23, Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon. And maybe you're thinking, don't know who any of those people are. I think that's okay. But if you'd been there, the end of Deuteronomy, 40 years down the line, you would have been going, hang on, hang on, hang on. The Levites aren't supposed to marry outside of their tribe. Aaron did. Aaron, again, great model example. He did. He married outside of his tribe. His wife, it seems, was from the tribe of Judah. And so there's a messiness here. There's an awkwardness. There's a... We wouldn't have quite done it that way. And yet, when it comes to serving God, our histories do not define us. And the messiness of, us, the messiness of our families do not define us. If we are to be servants of God, we are those who know that we have been forgiven for our sins. Those who have committed deliberately, maliciously, and those that we committed in ignorance and the things that we have inherited from our families. More than that, as we read about Aaron, we read about his sons. And so into this list come Aaron's sons. She bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. Now Nadab and Abihu are the sort of kids that you don't put on your Christmas card. The family update. Because they disgraced the family name. They were supposed to come into the priesthood. And then they decided off their own backs that they could improve on God's way of doing things. And so God struck them down. Now there are warnings here, but there is much grace. God calls Aaron to his service. With all of his family problems. God is merciful to his people. He does not hold their past against them, nor is he prejudiced. The servant of God has been called, has been redeemed, and is being purified. So if you're somebody who thinks God would never use somebody like me, my life is too messy, my history is too, I don't even want to talk about it. No, there's good news. God calls Aaron to be his servant. But there are positive examples too. And so we look down and go, oh, okay, the list goes on beyond Aaron. So verse 24, the sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abisath. These were the Korahite clans. I think this is the thing that's just most amazed me as I've been looking down and preparing for this sermon. Who are these sons of Korah? What do servants of God have? They are imbued 
are in every core of them struck and holding on to the fact that God has been merciful to them. Who were the sons of Korah? Well, let's ask the question, who's Korah? Korah, you can see him further up the page on verse 21, is what we would colloquially call a bad apple. He was called to serve God as part of the Levi tribe, but he was not content. And Numbers chapter 16 tells us the story of Korah as he leads a rebellion against Moses and against Aaron. He is malcontent. He's looking around going, I want more and I can do it better. And quite frankly, I ought to be in charge. He's not happy with God's ways. And so he tries to take on Moses and Aaron. He wants a seat at the top table. And Moses deals with him and says, let's let God sort this out between us. Come on, you stand over there, I'll stand over here, and we'll let God sort out who is right here. And this is one of those stories that we probably don't teach in Sunday school, because God takes away the ground from beneath Korah and his two leaders' feet and all of their uh, families with them, and they are swallowed up because of their opposition to God and it is dark and grim and terrifying this is Korah and as we read the passage we think that all of his family is gone with him we're told that his wife and his kids are, are there outside of his tent too as Moses tells everywhere, everybody else to back away but here we have the sons of Korah or the descendants of Korah mentioned in this family line. Somehow, some way, some of Korah's descendants survive. They are not treated along with the rest of the family. They are not judged and destroyed. They could have been. Perhaps they ought to have been. And yet God shows them mercy. Maybe because of their age. Maybe because they were older and they decided not to stand with their father. But they are shown mercy. And remarkably, they don't just survive, but then they thrive in the Lord's service. And the sons of Korah, if you search that name in your Bible, you will find that the sons of Korah write some of the psalms the songs of praise that Israel used to worship God these who ought to have been destroyed are now praising God for his mercy and grace let me read to you part of one of the psalms of the sons of Korah psalm 85 they write 11 psalms that are attributed to them let me read this to you. It's, it's amazing. You, Lord, showed favour to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God, our Saviour. To be a servant of God is to be a person who never forgets the mercy that God has shown you. 
who never takes for granted that God would be quite within his rights to be totally done with you. A person so in love with the truth that we are saved by grace alone that it comes out and drives everything else. I think we see in the New Testament this exact theme coming through. Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our sins, but God. Or Romans chapter 12. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And we could go on. What does a servant of God look like? It's somebody who never forgets the grace and mercy shown to them and operates out of that grace and out of that mercy towards other people. One other example. Look down again, the last line of this. Verse 25. Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel and she bore him Phinehas. Phinehas. Back into Numbers. Numbers chapter 25 tells the story as we reach the the end of 40 years in the wilderness. But Israel gets close to a, a, a foreign people and the foreign people begin to influence Israel. And Israel falls into sin, even within touching distance of getting into the promised land. And specifically, it's marital and sexual sin. And they become impure and their hearts are far from God. But one man stands up, Phinehas. I won't spoil the details for you. You can go away and read it in Numbers chapter 25. But God speaks of this man, Phinehas, and he says this about him. Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was as zealous for my honour among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honour of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. Phinehas stands out. And he's prepared to stand out because he loves what God loves. His heart for God means that he's, he's prepared for other, to be different to other people. This word zeal, this passion for God's glory. This is what the servant of God ought to have. I wonder if you are prepared to, to stand out. Some of you younger people know what it's like to be amongst friends and maybe even church friends and Christian friends and to have that moment where you think, we ought not to be talking about this. We ought not to be doing this. And the Holy Spirit is pressing on your conscience and you know that it will be hard to speak up. And it's easier not to. Some of you older people know what this is like as well. Will you have a zeal for God like Phinehas? This is what the servant of God 
no matter how old, no matter how weak, no matter how messy, this is what he or she ought to be like, what we ought to be like. And if you read the story, I'm not saying you need to go around stabbing people. Now you really want to read it, don't you? But a passion that says, I love what God loves. And I'm prepared to stand out and not blend in. At the start of this new year, will we be servants of God who trust that he forgives, who trust that he is not prejudiced against us, who have a passion for his name and his glory and his ways, who recognises that he chooses the weak things of the world, this world to shame the wise, who recognise in our age, be it old age or young age, who recognise in our weakness and frailty that we are not strong, but that we trust that when God says, these are the people I have called to serve me and I will glorify myself through them. Will we be like in this example, Moses and Aaron, who did everything that the Lord commanded them to do? <coughs> Let's pray. Father, you have shown your mercy to us we say with the, one of the authors of the New Testament, such, such were we. Lord, we know what it is to act shamefully. Lord, to do the wrong thing out of fear. And we know what it is to have cold hearts. And yet, we want to serve you. There is you have placed within us a desire to do all that you have commanded us. And so we pray for ourselves and for each other that we would have the zeal of Phinehas, that we would have the grace-infused praise of the sons of Korah, that we would delight in your mercy shown to us and we would show it to others, and that we would trust that you will use us in our weakness, in our frailty, in our fearfulness to bring glory to your name. And people will see that, yes, we are weak. Yes, we are jars of clay. But in that jars of clay, Father, you have placed your wonderful, glorious light. And so, Father, we pray that we would shine like stars for your glory, with the help and power of your Spirit. Lord, that we might be forgotten, that we might be the dead ends on a genealogy, you know us, and you have called us to your service, and we pray that we might have great and increasing joy in that service. For Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen.